You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information. Well, today I have a really unusual story for you. It's one that I originally planned to include in my next book, but as I was putting it together, I realized I was putting too much crime in and decided to leave this one out. So here it is. Now, the story takes place in India, so I'm sure to butcher the pronunciation of names, so I apologize for that in advance. The story begins at the Howrah Railway Station, which sits just across the Hooghly River from Calcutta and is considered to be the busiest station in all of India. It was here on November 26, 1933, that Amarendra Pandey arrived as he began his journey from Calcutta to his family home in Pakur. He was accompanied by several female relatives, most important of which was his aunt. She was a rich widow named Rani Sergebadi. Also there to see Amara off was his half-brother Benayendra. Now this is an incredibly unusual act of kindness for him. And that's because Benoit was 11 years older than Amar, and the two had little in common. While the older Benoit was a free-spending playboy and kind of, you know, the black sheep of the family, Amar was the one who was just loved and respected by all. Now, just as Amar's party moved through the booking area of the station, a man walking in the opposite direction suddenly brushed up against him. Detecting a sharp sting in his right arm, Amar blurted, Someone has pricked me! His aunt would later testify that, quote, a short black man with an oval face brushed up against him. So Amar rolled up his sleeve to examine the wound. While the puncture was small, there was a colorless liquid oozing out of it. Nearly all of those in his entourage expressed concern, and it was suggested that he should cancel his planned trip and immediately seek medical attention. His brother Benoit, on the other hand, was the only one who didn't seem concerned. He made light of the injury as he grabbed Amar's arm and began to massage the puncture site. Over the course of the entire train ride to Pakur, his relatives continued to push Amar to change his mind and go see a doctor. Well, a few days later, he finally agreed and took a train back to Calcutta, and he did just that. Upon examination, the doctor noted that the prick spot appeared to be, quote, something like the mark of a hypodermic needle, 
so a blood sample was taken and it was sent off to a laboratory for testing. Unfortunately, Amar took a turn for the worse. He developed a high fever and his tongue blackened as his face, groin, and armpits began to swell. Sadly, Amaranda would not recover and he passed away on December 4th of 1933. The task of cremating Amar's body fell upon his irresponsible brother Benoit, and you know, having little respect for his younger brother, he opted to bribe an official to have the body disposed of quickly. As a result, an autopsy was never performed. Several days later, the results of that blood sample were finally reported. It turns out that Amar had died from bubonic plague, and it was thought that he'd been infected by that unidentified man who pricked him in the arm at the Howard station. His death was now believed to be a murder. What's interesting is that the Black Death had all been thought eradicated in India in 1933. The last person thought infected in that region had passed away several years prior. And if Amar was in fact injected with the plague, one had a question where one could obtain such a deadly bacterium. Well, it turns out there was only one place. Since 1896, all research related to the plague in India was strictly controlled by the Halfkind Institute in Bombay, which of course is Mumbai today. And under no circumstance would the Institute supply plague cultures to private companies or to individuals. As investigators scoured through the Institute's records, one name stood out among the rest. It just kept coming up over and over again. His name was Dr. Taranath Bhattacharjee, and he had tried on multiple occasions to obtain a viable culture of the plague to test a theory that he had. And further digging uncovered the fact that Taranath's closest friend was none other than Benoyendra Pandey, Amar's half-brother. Suddenly, all the pieces of the puzzle began to fit together. You see, Benoit was 27 and Amar 16 years of age when their wealthy father died in 1929. The estate was split somewhat equally between the two brothers, and it included a significant annual income from the rental of real estate. Benoit, as I've mentioned, was a known partier, and he generously shared his lifestyle with his closest friends, of which Taranath, you know, the doctor, was a recipient. Of course, to call any of them close friends was a bit of an exaggeration. They were more like parasites, you know, those who always lived in fear that their source of easy money was about to be cut off. When Amar turned 18 in 1931, he began to take steps to gain control of his portion of the estate, which up until that point had been handled by his irresponsible half-brother. Well, Benoit fought him at every step along the way. At some point, Benoit had become so determined to gain possession of his brother's money that his close friends began to come up with ways to bump off Amar. It was suggested that perhaps Amar could be pushed in front of a moving train or that Benoit could hire some thug to strangle Amar. But it was Taranath, the doctor, who offered up what he felt was the perfect crime. To avoid arousing suspicion, 
Tana stated that Amar needed to die of natural causes, and the plague was the perfect choice. Well, the doctor knew of about a dozen laboratories in India where the bacilli were being cultured. So he wrote to each one stating his qualifications, even sometimes greatly exaggerating them, and he explained the testing that he wished to do. While a few were willing to allow him to do his tests at their facilities, none were willing to allow the cultures or the infected rats out of the laboratory. Having been unable to obtain a plague culture, it is alleged that Taranath set his sights on the next best thing, tetanus. You know, since tetanus was unlikely to cause an epidemic, he concluded it would be less closely guarded and far easier to obtain. And their plan was really simple. Benoit obtained a pair of glasses and proceeded to smear the tetanus germs across its nose piece. While on a family vacation in the fall of 1932, he asked Amar to go for a short walk. The conversation turned to that of the eyeglasses and Amar agreed to try them on. And just as the eyeglasses were settling into place, Benoit jammed them down into Amar's nose and it pierced the skin. The next day, Amar was taken to a local doctor and diagnosed with, you guessed it, tetanus. So his aunt wired Benoit and requested that he bring the family physician. But he didn't do so. When Benoit arrived, he brought Taranath instead. Taranath insisted that the administration of the tetanus antitoxin be stopped and injections of morphine be used instead. Well, the local doctor held his ground and he refused to give in. Frustrated, Benoit soon showed up with another doctor, Dr. Dar, who injected Amar with a serum he had obtained in Calcutta. But that didn't go too well. He soon developed an abscess at the site of this injection. Later, Benoit arrived with both Dr. Dar and Taranath in tow to administer additional selected medicines. But by this time, Amar's aunts and sisters had grown suspicious of Benoit's actions, and they would not allow his personal doctors to treat Amar. Amar would slowly regain his health over the next few months, but in the end it is said that he was left with a permanently damaged heart. With the tetanus infection having failed, Benoit and Taranath returned to their original plan. They would once again attempt to obtain a plague culture. On November 30th, 1933, Benoit traveled to Bombay to meet with a doctor at the Hafkine Institute. He said he'd been sent in advance to find out whether the Institute would allow a fellow doctor, as if he were really one, to use their facilities to test a curative drug for the plague. He was informed that approval of the Institute's director would be required. In May, Taranath finally found a doctor who was willing to work with him, but under no circumstance was Taranath allowed to handle the plague culture. When his experiment failed, as if there really was one, the doctor he had been working under refused to secure a second culture for testing. Then, on July 1st, Benoit was once again in Bombay waving wads of cash, 
This was in an effort to convince two veterinarians to obtain a plague culture from the Halfkind Institute. As you can probably guess, they also refused. Shortly after this rejection, Benoit found a doctor at the Arthur Road Hospital, that's now the Kasturba Hospital, and he took interest in Taranath's research. He assigned an assistant to work with Taranath, and a live plague culture was obtained from the Halfkind Institute. Benoit and Taranath purchased some white rats from a bird dealer, and the supposed testing began although the assistant later testified that he never observed any type of medicine ever being applied. Finally, on July 12th, Taranath told the assistant that he had urgent work that he needed to attend to back in Calcutta, and he needed to leave right away. He would not return. That night, both Taranath and Benoit skipped town. It was around this time that Benoit attempted to obtain a life insurance policy worth 51,000 rupees on his brother, with the stipulation that the policy not be contested after Amar's death. He was denied coverage. With the plague culture now in their possession, Benoit needed to lure Amar back to Calcutta. So he tried to persuade his aunt to send a telegram, but she outright refused she just didn't trust him. So he sent a bogus message using her name instead. Amar arrived in Calcutta on November 19, 1933. While he was there, Amar went to the theater with five female relatives. Benoit was spotted hovering around the premises with a man whose description was nearly identical to that of the man who fatally pricked Amar. It was thought that the man had been hired by Benoit to administer that shot in the arm that evening, but it was not done because Amar was too closely surrounded by his relatives when they emerged from the theater. Instead, Benoit and that unknown assailant would complete their dastardly deed a few days later at the railroad station. It took investigators about 10 weeks to piece this entire sequence of events together. Benoit was arrested on February 16, 1934, followed by Taranath two days later. Also charged with the murder were Dr. Dar, he's the one who had administered that fake dose of tetanus antiserum, and Dr. Sivapada Bhattarache, who wrote out the death certificate. He claimed that Amar had died from sepsis pneumonia. During the trial, 85 witnesses were called to testify and more than 300 exhibits were introduced. The prosecutor stated that the case was, quote, unparalleled in the annals of crime of India in its enormity and well-planned scientific design. It took the jury just four hours to unanimously find Benoit and Taranath guilty of murder, and they recommended mercy. The other two doctors were acquitted of the charges. The judge stated, quote, This is the coldest blooded crime I have ever come across. And on February 16, 1935, that's one year to the day after Benoit's arrest, the two men were sentenced to death. An appeal was immediately filed, and on January 9, 1936, the lower court's decision was affirmed 
but the decision was made to set aside the death sentences. Instead, Benoit and Taranath were sentenced to transportation for life to the Andaman Islands in the Bay of Bengal. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. Right now, a question for unhappy, uncomfortable people. I mean you, suffering from the miseries of a cold. Who, me? <laughs> Gesundheit. Yes, you. Why don't you get yourself some really fast relief from your cold discomforts with Minute Rub, a really modern chest rub? Did you say Minute Rub? Yes, Minute Rub. Just rub Minute Rub on your throat, chest, and back. In a minute, Minute Rub's soothing menthol vapors begin to clear up that stuffy feeling in the nose and throat. In a minute, Minute Rub starts to bring a feeling of warmth and relief to those tight, sore, aching muscles. And listen, here at last is a chest rub that's greaseless and stainless. Disappears like vanishing cream and can't stain clothes or bed linen. Forget a tube of Minute Rub and get quick relief from that annoying cold misery the modern way. The greaseless, stainless, Minute Rub way. That commercial for Minute Rub is from the February 7, 1947 NBC broadcast of The Alan Young Show. This particular episode was titled, Photo of a Bank Robber. The show ran on radio from 1944 through 1949 and then moved to CBS television in 1950. Of course, the Vancouver-born Young is best remembered for his role as Wilbur Post on the classic CBS television show, Mr. Ed. As for Minute Rub, it was originally marketed by Bristol Myers as a kind of miracle drug, you know, that could treat the common cold, penetrate muscles to relieve pain, and to help overcome insomnia. But in reality, it was no different from the other topical lotions that contained wintergreen. You know, think Bengay or any similar product. The Federal Trade Commission forced Bristol-Myers to stop advertising such claims in July of 1941. If you're curious, the oil of wintergreen works by being a counter-irritant. It causes your skin to feel cool and then warm. And of course, this distracts you from feeling the real pain in your muscles and joints, but it really does little to help them heal. In low concentrations, wintergreen is used as a flavoring agent in gum and mints. Of course, the best example is wintergreen lifesavers, which I use in my classroom to demonstrate triboluminescence. Even if you don't know what that is, you can give it a try at home. Simply pop one in your mouth in a dark room, bite down hard, don't break your teeth, you just bite down while looking in a mirror, and you will see bluish sparks in your mouth. Give it a shot, it's fun. So here's a question for you. In what year did color television sales finally exceed those of black and white? Well, hang around for a bit and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. 
You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. At the time, I only felt a punch. I think everything went wrong. His drug of choice was heroin. Binging and purging over and over and over. Evaluate you, and if you're okay to go, they're going to let you go. This is Justin, and I do the Peripheral Podcast. I have a true crime background, but when telling the stories of true crime, sometimes you have to gloss over topics like mental illness, drug addiction, sexual assault. And I feel like we do that in life too. So this podcast is my attempt to bring all of these topics that are on the peripheral into the mainstream. So please join me wherever you listen to podcasts. In other news, here are three short stories that I found interesting. First, from February 4th, 1936, we have the story of 25-year-old Edwin H. Land. He had taken a leave of absence during his senior year at Harvard to set up a laboratory to advance an invention that he'd been working on for 10 years. He had developed a piece of glass in which he aligned billions of tiny crystals in the same direction and embedded them in a cellulose matrix. Giant companies like AT&T and Kodak had been testing his invention, and they were extremely excited by it. He claimed that his invention had more than 800 commercial uses. And while that may sound like an exaggeration, he was correct. Today it is found in sunglasses, cameras, cell phones, and it's extensively used in manufacturing and scientific experiments. Land, whose name is mostly forgotten today, had invented the first artificial polarizing material. And up through the 1970s, Lamb was kind of what Steve Jobs became to Apple. Throngs of reporters and consumers eagerly lined up to hear Land announce his company's latest and greatest inventions every single year. His company just happened to be named Polaroid. Next up, we have a story dated March 18th of 1943, where 45-year-old author George G. Gorman was in federal court being tried for writing a work of fiction. Apparently, Gorman wrote a short story titled The Red-Headed Widow and Her Borrowed Lovers under the pseudonym of G. Jackson Gregory, and then he sold it to one of those true detective magazines. In other words, he claimed that his fictitious story was true, even though it wasn't, and he was charged with using the mails to defraud. During his trial, it was learned that Gorman had been the subject of a Ripley's Believe It or Not oddity in the 1930s because he had not had a good night's sleep in 13 years. So his lawyer, Abe Goldman, suggested to the judge that this could partially be the reason why Gorman wrote that fictitious story. I don't think the judge bought it. Judge Merrill E. Otis stated, quote, I don't sleep so well myself at times and I've understood that Thomas Edison didn't sleep much either. The judge sentenced Gorman to one year and a day in an institution or penitentiary where he would receive medical care. 
he explained that he didn't believe the offense to be a serious one and he would consider parole of Gorman after one-third of the sentence had been served. Well, Gorman ended up in the hospital section of the federal penitentiary at Terry Hout, Indiana, where he underwent what was reported to be a serious surgery. There was no further explanation given. Lastly, on October 16, 1974, a man's bullet-riddled body was discovered on Rainbow Beach in Chicago, where East 78th Street meets Lake Michigan. Mrs. Sarah Edwards identified the body as that of her husband, Charles Edwards. She then paid $353, or about $1,800 today, to the Collins Funeral Home to cover the costs of cremation and burial. Police became suspicious when fingerprints identified the man as being that of 33-year-old Jerome Baker Ware. After Ware's wife, Ernestine, was shown photographs of the body, she confirmed that it was of her husband, James, who she had previously reported missing. So just what was going on here? Well, it turns out that 22-year-old Carl Jones, who had been previously arrested under the pseudonym of Charles Edwards, wanted to basically disappear and get a fresh start at life. So when the body of Jerome Baker Ware turned up, he had his girlfriend, that's 22-year-old Patricia Moore, pretend to be his widow. Posing as Mrs. Sarah Edwards, she arranged for the cremation. Well, clearly their plan backfired and Jones was arrested for obstruction of justice. So earlier in the podcast, I had asked you during which year did color television sales finally overtake those of black and white? So do you know the answer? Well, before I tell you, let me provide you with a little background on color television. The first color televisions were placed on sale by both Admiral and RCA on December 30th of 1953. Both had 15-inch screens, which of course is far smaller than even the smallest flat screen today. Now get this. The RCA model sold for $1,000. That'd be about $9,500 today. Even worse, the Admiral sold for $1,175. That'd be about $11,000 adjusted for inflation. It wouldn't be until 1972 that the sales of color television would exceed those of black and white. In 1972, 8,845,000 color TVs were sold versus 8,239,000 black and white televisions. Which got me thinking about the first time that I ever saw color television. It's when my dad brought one home back in either the late 1960s or early 1970s. It sat in the basement of our Brooklyn home, and I remember eagerly watching The Brady Bunch and The Partridge Family, and this is long before they went into reruns, and of course I got to see my favorite cartoons in living color. Amazingly, that television lasted a very long time. My parents were still watching it in the 1980s, and every time that television blew out, my dad would simply unscrew the back cover, remove the blown tube, and then head on over to our local Jamesway department store to purchase a new tube. Within minutes of arriving home, the TV was magically fixed. Try doing that today with a modern television. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. 
just want to give a quick shout out to Last Call Trivia. They did a really nice write-up on my podcast, so I decided to check out what they did. I found out that Last Call Trivia is a live trivia and game show experience that is currently operating in several major cities across the nation. Unfortunately, they're not here in Albany where I live. All their shows are free to play and you can win prizes at all of them. You can join their trivia or feud league for a chance to play in a local tournament and win even bigger prizes. So be sure to check out lastcalltrivia.com. That's lastcalltrivia.com and you can learn more about what they do and locate a show near you. A little update on the book. The end is finally near. I can see some light at the end of the tunnel. To be honest, I wasn't too thrilled by the cover that the publisher proposed. I was hoping you know, for something a little bit more fun or animated than what I initially saw, so hopefully they'll come up with something better before the book comes out. Now, if you'd like to receive occasional updates as to when the book's available, just go to my website at uselessinformation.org and click on the image of the book on the left. That'll take you to a Google form where you can enter your contact information. I've also asked those that run the network to tone down the frequency of the ads a bit. I'm told that a new interface is on its way that allow me to have better control over the ads. Honestly, right now I have none. And while I have nothing against Geico, they've been very supportive of my podcast, I'm not sure why they need to run the same ad four times in an episode when they have no other sponsor. just makes no sense to me. Anyway, be sure to sign up for my Twitter feed. It's at UselessInfoCast, at UselessInfoCast, and you'll be among the first to know when a new episode is released. Also, be sure to like the show on Facebook. Just do a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast, and it should pop up. You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. The Useless Information Podcast is part of the Recorded History Podcast Network, so be sure to go to recordedhistory.net to learn about all the quality history podcasts that this network has to offer. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye. Hello, I'm Mr. Ed. Horse is a horse, of course, of course, and no one can talk to a horse, of course. That is, of course, unless the horse is the famous Mr. Red. Go right to the source and ask the horse. He'll give you the answer that you endorse. He's always on a steady course. Talk to Mr. Red. People yakety-yak the street and waste your time a day. But Mr. Ebb will never speak unless he has something to say. A horse is a horse, of course, of course. And this one will talk to his voice, his horse. You never heard of a talking horse? Well, listen to this. I am Mr. Ebb. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.